1: What do you need to know about the movie Plane? Well, there's a plane. Specifically, there's a plane that goes down when it's struck by lightning and ends up on the worst possible island. It's then up to a captain, played by Gerard Butler and passengers, to survive without the plane until they can get back to the plane. I'm Linda Holmes, and today we're talking about Plane on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining me today is Ronald Young Jr. He's the host of the film and television review podcast, Leaving the Theater. Welcome back, Ronald. Wheels up, Linda. Also joining us today is writer Chris Klimak. Hi, Chris.
2: Jungle cleared, feet wet, Linda.
1: As you can tell, I've already decided that if you say plain enough times, it becomes a very funny word. Plane stars Gerard Butler as Brody Torrance, a widowed pilot. And by the way, this time Gerard Butler is Scottish. He gets to be Scottish in this movie. Uh, He's a widowed pilot trying to get home to his teenage daughter on New Year's Eve. Unfortunately, he runs into a storm and all he can do is crash land on a tiny island in the South China Sea. But this is not just any island. It is an island run by, we are told, separatists, and criminals who quickly descend on the passengers with nothing but evil intent. Fortunately for our captain, an accused murderer named Gaspar, played by Mike Coulter, was being extradited to the United States and happened to be among the passengers. Torrance quickly realizes he will obviously be a big help. If you want to think of this movie as The Jungle Has Fallen, you could certainly do worse. But Ronald, let me ask you, what did you think about Plane? So... I
0: liked it, and it's weird because I unironically liked it. And that's not to say that it was a great movie, because I was going to say it maybe not even a good movie, but I think it was a good movie because it does enough. It doesn't take itself so seriously that it becomes overly wrought and hard to watch and hard to actually enjoy, but it does just enough research that it takes itself seriously enough. Like, we're talking about the way that it, it navigates people on a plane, the logistics of flying a plane, pre-flight checks, all of those conversations the way the crew talks to each other it sets the stakes of real danger it has something that relatable happens which is all of us are afraid of turbulence on a plane and it takes that all the way to the extreme and then it's generally just a problem solving movie where they just added an additional problem you know if this movie had been Flight of the Phoenix you know they're in the desert of plane crashes and the problem is they have to fix the plane to get out of the desert and towards the end of the movie you add this other little twist where if we gotta get on this plane we gotta get out now whereas in this movie they added the twist far earlier in the film and for me I mean it made me engage it pretty well now this movie is very weak on character development like they give you just enough to care enough about each one of these characters and whether they live or die. And some characters, they give you nothing at all. So you just got to like have compassion for them as people on the screen. But other than that, I I mean, for it to be a movie that runs an hour and 47 minutes long in a world where movies are running way too long, for me to be sitting there through that and be able to leave and laugh and have a good time with y'all at the theater, I had a great time.
1: I definitely will say this is the kind of movie where my big complaint about this type of movie is that they're always like 220, yes. you know? Yes. And I wind up thinking like, why on earth is this movie 220, right? <laughs> Especially since the first like 45 minutes at least of this film is the plane part, the yes. getting on the plane, the getting into the storm, the plane crashing. And they easily could have dragged out the island section of this to be much longer than it is. And you could easily have wound up with this movie coming in at 2.20 or 2.30, and it doesn't, and I was glad. Chris, how did you feel about Plane?
2: Uh, well, I should probably tell you that uh, an hour 47 is also exactly the length of Predator, Ooh. so it is the golden mean for the length of an action movie, and you're right. We used to know how to do this. You know, Linda, it was not so very long ago that you and I would be sitting in a movie theater together frequently in January, and one of us would turn to the other and say, you know, I sort of miss Liam Neeson, the revered, gravitas-dripping, dramatic actor. Mm-hmm. And and not until last night, I have a mind to turn to you and say, like, you know, I sort of miss Liam Neeson, the January trash action king. Uh-huh. <laughs> this movie, I guess it does just enough. I, I wanted to make a joke about dude, this being a Zucker Brothers movie, right? Because plane, airplane. But then I thought there's actually something to that, because airport, on a all those 70s disaster movies that the Zucker brothers were parodying, they spent a lot of time giving us the backstories and the domestic dramas concerning each passenger. And this person is getting divorced and this person is contemplating moving away and whatever, whatever. You know, we spend a lot of time on that stuff and we get none of that in this movie. This film is very, very efficient And I actually sort of like the absence of backstory. William Goldman has a whole chapter in one of his screenwriting books where he's like, you know, you can ruin a story by giving us too much backstory if you don't trust in the actors enough to communicate that they've lived a life and that there are circumstances specific to them that we may feel whether or not we know what they are. Um, and wow, I think I'm almost talking myself into saying I think Gerard Butler is is pretty good in this movie. Uh, I mean, he's, he's fine in this movie. He has that stoic quality. And, you know, I, I think what's most important is that we have another... Reluctant action hero and Brody Torrance who has entered the canon of all your favorites like Indiana McFly and Rocky Skywalker and Crash Brockovich. So um, uh, I will give this film one thumb up, I guess.
1: Yeah. Here's the thing. I want to give this film credit for accomplishing what I think it sets out to accomplish, right? Which is, as Ronald said, it's decent good time at the theater in the sense that, look, you were both sitting near me. You saw me, by the end, raising both fists every time they either said the word plane or showed the plane. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good time at the theater if you approach it like that. Now, Ronald was saying he unironically liked it. What I'm referring to is a little closer to ironically liking it. But I do want to acknowledge that, you know, there is something to the very formulaic execution of a formula, and I get that. I do want to say, it is possible to make a movie like this much better than this. (laughs) Yes. And the one thing that I would say is legitimately depressing about this movie is this kind of undifferentiated army of Asian jungle fighters, which to me is like, this is the kind of icky, stereotype-y... the the true lies terrorists. It's a bit racist. But second of all... It's not good from a screenwriting perspective, right? Not everybody's going to be Hans Gruber, but you have no idea who any of these guys are, what it means to say that they're criminals and separatists. And look, part of that is that's why the movie's not 220. I get that. That's part of what they didn't do. But like, they don't give you any sense, not just of who these guys are relative to each other, except that there's a boss. There's kind of this implication that they have murdered missionaries, that they are very, very bad and dangerous and violent, which is there to justify, you know, things like Mike Coulter going around and killing guys with a sledgehammer. But there's not actual bad guy development in this movie. This kind of movie can be much better than this. And I don't want to imply that because of the kind of movie this is, this is as good as you can ever expect it to be. But it is an on-rails execution of this formula that I mostly can sort of give a pass to, except that that sort of racist imagery feels kind of gross to me. And that's the part that I actually had a kind of a bad taste in my mouth, aside from the cheering for the plane and all that stuff.
0: Well, there's, and maybe this isn't the case all the time, but what I've noticed is that Whenever there's an introduction of meat in a film, and what I call meat is a foot soldier. Like, if you look at the MCU, all of a sudden you see all these ravaging beasts come out of nowhere. And I'm like, oh, they only exist so we can see all the superheroes demonstrate their power. That's it. That's the only reason why you see them, because if you go one-on-one, no one wants to watch a one-on-one with one person in Thanos. You want to watch a bunch of people just go through and go into berserker mode. And immediately, two things happen in this movie. You're right. These guys show up, and they are just bad. We know they're bad, and you're right. All the undertones of racism are there because we don't really get a sense of why they own this island, why they ended up there, any of their motivations. To be fair, the movie doesn't give motivations to most of the people on the mercenary side either. Absolutely true. So that at least feels consistent. But when you get to this place at the end, because they're bad, when you see a guy pull out a 50 cal, you're like, oh, I'm not supposed to feel bad when he starts shooting people from one side of the screen to the other Because these are the bad guys and it's happening to them, which you're right, it's inherently problematic because most of the meat that we see in a movie is typically unhuman. You know what I mean? It's typically like just a bunch of nameless, faceless people that we really don't zoom in the camera on that we kind of just see die. And this one, I believe the same producer did Olympus Has Fallen. And there's kind of the same thing, a high body count of a lot of Asian folks, which yes. I'm just like, I don't I don't know what y'all are trying to say to us about this specifically when you put that type of imagery on screen. Yeah. This problem, this flaw,
2: the casual racism and all of it is is almost a genre trope, you know, particularly in, in movies that we have seen before starring Plane. If you look at Plane's filmography and go back to Passenger 57 yes. or Executive Decision, yeah, none of them have um, particularly built out villains, even when they're played by the likes of, you know, Gary Oldman in the case of Air Force One anyway.
1: Yeah. And speaking of Air Force One, one of the things that I said to you last night, Chris, as Mm -hmm. we were waiting for this movie to start, is this seems to me like Gerard Butler is like making the Harrison Ford turn that Harrison Ford made around Air Force One, where you go from being the regular... Action guy to being like the older action guy and you still can be an action guy, but there's a little bit of like, I'm too old for this now. Like, got to get in it because I got to take care of everybody. It's a more like nurturing action guy, which is often played out through you know a dad who is like thinking about his kids he's he's sort of shifting over into like middle-aged action mm-hmm. uncle do you know what i mean
2: yeah and and actually i think getting to play the role in his native accent kind of brings that out a little bit yeah uh, i think he's a little more avuncular when he's not trying to not be scottish and I was thinking about, like, even though you know he's a widower in this, which we don't spend a lot of time on, but I mean, the film begins with him FaceTiming with his daughter and apologizing that the flight's going to get in late, but he's still going to be with her for New Year's Eve. You know, traditional parent-child holiday. Everybody wants to spend New Year's Eve together. Yeah. With um, your parents, yeah. You know, one of my, my big gripes whenever we're here talking about a Dwayne Johnson movie or is like he's never, even though he's always some you know, international action hero, frequently away from home type, like he is always a single parent, the child always adores him, never resents him for his absence or his inattention or anything. But I mean, one of the reasons that I love John McClane so much as an action hero is like lousy husband, lousy father, feels bad about it, you know, trying to do better. But that does humanize him. And it's unfortunate that if Gerard Butler is aging into this this next phase of his reluctant action hero career, that he's following the Dwayne Johnson, I'm still a perfect father mode instead mm, of the, the flawed parent mode that also, for example, the uh, the Spielberg uh, Tom Cruise War of the Worlds, I think is, yeah. is a richer film for the fact that Tom Cruise is a bad dad in that movie, who at least, you know, is trying to be better, but... Has some dimension there.
0: You know, in fairness, his kids really sucked in that movie, though, too. They do,
1: yes. (laughs) I do think if you go to this movie with the idea in mind, I'm going to see Plain, I do think I would have preferred more Plain. But if you go with that in mind, it's hard for me to imagine having seen the trailer and walking out feeling like you did not get what was advertised. I feel like the trailer is just the movie condensed. They essentially tell you everything that happens. Um, I do think Mike Coulter is a little bit wasted in this movie in the sense that I think he can be a charismatic actor. And all he really does in this is glisten in an oiled fashion. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: I think I think he's woefully underutilized and I think it's something that I really didn't notice until the longer the scenes went because I'm like, obviously we're going to get Mike, more Mike Coulter, right? And I think their idea of giving us more Mike Coulter was cutting off the sleeves of his shirt and oiling him down, like you said. And I was like, oh no, I mean, I wanted more of him talking because I'm a huge Luke Cage fan. I really yeah. enjoyed the charisma that he brought on screen.
1: Very few lines. Yeah. yeah. And the thing
0: was, the few lines that he had made me say, I want to hear more. Like, we he talks about redemption or talks about nobody wants to hear what actually happened I thought we were going to get some backstory on that and the biggest thing waste I thought was to not get a final check-in on him at the end of the movie based on what happened in the movie I feel like I really wanted that last moment of him just hanging out having a good time and we didn't get that yeah. so it felt like they didn't actually even close that loop but I wanted to say like this movie also I think it did a good job of like I said it gave us just enough information to care but if it gave us any less information it would have started to become a parody like sharknado or what the fast movies have become it like did enough to avoid that but you're right this is a movie that if you go in looking to have fun you will have fun when you leave more than likely but if you go in expecting more than what you saw in the trailer you're 100 right linda like you're gonna be disappointed yeah
2: yeah. I, I mean, if we have to look for something to to praise, uh, if Air and Space magazine still existed, I definitely would have spent the morning explaining like what they're doing with the stopwatch when they're trying to land the plane without avionics, without yes. electronics. I mean, they were either like trying to figure out how much battery power they had left or trying to figure out their altitude from the rate of descent or something. Mm-hmm. That was cool. Like someone actually thought about that for five minutes as they were writing the script. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, there's a certain expectation created when you name your hero halfway after uh, Roy Scheider in Jaws and halfway after Jack Nicholson in The Shining. And maybe this doesn't live up to that.
1: Oh, I, I assumed it was named halfway after Kirsten Dunst and bring it on. But anyway, no. <laughs> tell us what you think about Plane. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what is making us happy this week?
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Be My Guest with Ina Garten, a podcast from Food Network. Intimate and captivating conversations with new and old friends. Jennifer Garner, Frank Bruni, Emily Mortimer, and more. Listen to Be My Guest wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, TeleDog Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy: family, work, living a fuller life. TeleDoc Health understands whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight. TeleDoc Health can help. Visit TeleDocHealth.com/what'syourwhy for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health/slash What's Your Why.
1: Now it is time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What's making us happy this week? Ronald Young Jr., what's making you happy this week?
0: The first thing is more personal, and the second thing is more universal. The first thing is, most of you know that I am the host of another podcast called Leaving the Theater, and we are excited to have our very first live show here in Washington, D.C. at the Miracle Theater on February 11th at 8 p.m. Very, very excited. We're going to have storytelling, we're going to have comedy, and we're going to have a panel discussion on the different forms of love in television and film featuring friend of the show, Daisy Rosario, will be there, so I'm very, (laughs) very excited uh, that we're doing this. So if you're around, if you follow me on socials, you can find a way to get those tickets. So I'm really excited that we're able to do this first time since pre-pandemic. And this is the first live show for leaving the theater. So I'm very, very excited about that. Something more universal. I have been watching Alice in Borderland. I just finished the second season. So a lot of people were watching Squid Game on Netflix, which was very good hypothetical. What if this thing happened and you had to fight for your life or get a lot of money? Whereas Alice in Borderland is really going to emotional relationships between all of these people who are forced to play these games for their lives in kind of a post-apocalyptic universe that they find themselves in. It's a science fiction thriller. It's on Netflix. It's entirely in Japanese, uh, and which I actually enjoy because I feel like I don't really get the opportunity to watch a lot of foreign language properties, and I just sit down and just blaze through this, enjoying every single minute of it. Again, that's Alice in Borderland, and that's available on Netflix.
1: All right. Thank you very much, Ronald. Chris Klimek, what is making you happy this week?
0: I'm going to recommend two
2: films from 2022 with similar titles, but that are unrelated to one another, except thematically they kind of are. Uh, the first one is Charlotte Wells's drama After Sun, and the other one is Koganada's, mm, also kind of a drama, but a little sci-fi, After Yang. So uh, After Son is a a father-daughter drama. It's a, a grown woman looking back on a, a vacation she took with her her dad, played by Paul Mescal, uh, about 20 years prior to the main action of the film. Uh, After Yang is um, Colin Farrell in another one of his great performances, along with uh, Banshees last year as uh, a father whose, whose family android has stopped functioning. Uh, his daughter is particularly... Uh, attached to this this android, so he needs to figure out what to do about it. I was so moved by both of them. Um, so again, that Charlotte Wells' is After Sun and uh, the director Koganata's After Yang. They're both great and equally unrelated to Plane.
1: All right. After and after. Thank you very much, Chris Klimek. Well, based on my general read of social media and other things, there are a lot of us who have started going through some of the films that appeared on the recent version of the once-per-decade sight-and-sound poll of the best films of all time. This only happens, as I said, once every 10 years. There was a lot of stuff about how it was shaken up and, you know, things moved around. Like, why wouldn't they every 10 years? But (laughs) um, I did decide, and this is some of you know, I also have a New Year's resolution to watch more movies that uh, came out before I was born. And I actually shifted that to that came out before I was 10 years old because I realized I also was not watching movies that were coming out when I was a, a small child. So I started at the top. And uh, I watched Jean Dielman, which is a movie from Chantal Ackerman. came out in 1975. It's about a woman who is raising a son. She's a widow. She's raising a son. And she is supporting herself by doing sex work in the afternoons before her son comes home for dinner. I did not look really into what this film was. Before I started watching it, nor did I look at how long it was. So (laughs) I started to watch it and I was like, wow, I've been watching this woman do chores for like half an hour. And it's a pretty interesting movie and I'm really enjoying it. I wonder how much of this movie is this woman doing chores. And then I looked up how long it was and it's three hours and 15 or 20 minutes, something like that. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to this show, you have heard me express frustration with overlong movies many, many, many times. My delight with this was I was never bored by it. I never felt like I wanted to stop. watching. Watching it. I, I never felt hurried because in order to understand what happens to this woman in this film, you have to see her go through these rituals of making coffee, making dinner, folding the laundry. There's a long sequence where she peels potatoes. There's a long sequence where she breads veal. I have really enjoyed, not only did I really enjoy watching this film, but I also really have enjoyed reading a bunch of different interpretations of it, some of which I agree with, some of which I think are a little bit off. It immediately began to resonate with other things that I was watching in terms of the dignity of domestic labor and what gives meaning and value to different kinds of work. So in some ways, it's a movie about work. I think it can be intimidating to jump into a movie that feels very different from what you normally watch, which this is very different from what I normally watch. But I want people to... Give it a try. I was not bored by this. I did not feel like it was a chore. I felt like I understood what the director was getting at. Again, that is Jean Dielman right now. It is on the Criterion channel. Yes. It is on HBO Max. So that is what is making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some additional recommendations, sign up for our newsletter. That's at npr.org slash popculturenewsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Ronald Young Jr., Chris Klimek, thanks to you both for joining me on the plane. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Linda. This episode was produced by Candace Lim and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all next week.